Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. And we're in the extra time! Kura and welcome to Extra Time. I'm Bridget Tunnicliffe. This week we look at the report into gymnastics in New Zealand which identified a culture of fear and retribution in the sport and led to the organisation publicly apologising to anyone who's been harmed as a result. Super Rugby Aotearoa kicks off at the end of the month and it's going to look different again with experimental laws being introduced. And it's game set match for Carl Budge, the outgoing tournament director of the ASB Tennis Classic. Abusive coaches, body image issues and eating disorders, children left in tears and a fear of retribution. They're among the findings of a report into the culture of gymnastics New Zealand reiterating concerns raised in the media last year. A raft of recommendations have been made by an independent investigation released this week. Gymnastics New Zealand Chief Executive Tony Compier says the situation in New Zealand is reflective of the sport globally. We've gotten here, I, I believe, through a uh, the world uh, essentially undergoing a 30 to 40 year global reconciliation of some domestic practices that um, that were normalised and acceptable that should no longer be, that were normalised uh, and should never have been, um, and some practices which should never have been conducted. And obviously that's had, um, certainly by the reports that we've seen, um, some significant long-lasting effect on those assets. Former gymnast Georgia Servan, who represented New Zealand at the 2006 Melbourne Commonwealth Games, says the review needs to be the start of a much bigger dialogue. Servan says Gymnastics New Zealand needs to show a willingness to start listening to athletes. You know, their apology will be measured by their actions moving forward and the extent to which they engage with survivors and not just engage with them, but really empower them to improve the sport. Gymnastics New Zealand plan to have a seven-member steering committee in place by March to help them action the report recommendations. But Lincoln University academic Rosalind Kerr, who's part of the International Socio-Cultural Research Group on Women's Artistic Gymnastics, is wary on just how successful that might be. One of the things in gymnastics, and well in anywhere really, is you know who has the voice that people will listen to. And so if this committee is made up of people who aren't respected by people in the gymnastics community, including some of the most prominent judges and coaches, then it's probably not going to actually be able to achieve a lot, particularly in terms of those recommendations around cultural change and changing how we do things. I'm joined now by RNZ sports journalist Felicity Reid and Stuff's Zoe George who have been covering this story. Um, Zoe, when you look at the Olympic success, gymnastics has always been very popular in Eastern 
European bloc, mm. North America, and I've always associated strict training regimes with those countries. Mm. Were you surprised it's been happening in the New Zealand gymnastics scene? Well, of, of course not. Uh, you know, you look at the popularity, like you said, of those places. But we've also, one of the things that I found quite fascinating within this uh, report was that it did talk about those really tough Eastern Bloc style coaches. But we have to remember that gymnastics has been in New Zealand before the style of coaching arrived in New Zealand. So we just can't blame this type of regime on what's going on in this sport. We actually have to look wider and think about what we have contributed as New Zealanders who sit outside these Eastern Bloc training regimes have contributed to the sport and the allegations of abuse. Felicity, you talked to some people this week who weren't happy with how the review was carried out. What were some of the concerns? Well, even before the review was completed, there were concerns from gymnasts about how confidential it actually would be. How would the sensitive information be stored and were the right people with the right credentials for dealing with abuse cases in place to carry out the review? So for a number of people, they would have been, was something valuable to contribute. They were tossing up whether it would be a safe space to bring up things that they have obviously been deeply affected by and in some cases would have been bringing up a traumatic time. And there were concerns about how, that, how they would be supported following the submissions. So these concerns then meant that a number of athletes didn't actually contribute to this and which had the flow on effect of the vast majority of submissions to this were from adults, from coaches, parents, administrators. So a comeback on this has been that this doesn't actually have the athlete voice that that were required. So Gymnastics New Zealand Chief Executive uh, Tony Compier he expressed surprise at the level of the problem the investigation has unearthed. But is that just because people are too nervous to complain in the first place? Is Has it just been a vicious cycle? Yeah, there is this whole uh, notion of repercussions and retribution when it comes to speaking up. Early on in my investigation, we actually reported on one of the club CEOs, one of the biggest club CEOs in the country, saying the people who were speaking up were, quote, vindictive. So just imagine going, this is what's happening to me, and then being called that. In regards to speaking out particularly from parents and athletes, there is this fear of non-selection, of being ostracised by your peers and by your coaches and by others, missing out on selections. Uh, So it is an ongoing kind of cycle. But hopefully what we can do is, now that this review is out, uh, we can start listening and addressing uh, and, and moving on and going from there to help create really positive change. Because one of the good things about this is that people are speaking out because they love the sport and they want it to change for the better. And I think we need to hold on to that as we move forward with this. The review panel made more than 50 recommendations. Mm. It's a lot of recommendations. Mm. They include restorative process for abuse survivors, independent and confidential complaints process, more transparency, judges scoring, etc. Have you identified maybe one or two of those recommendations that could make tangible, long-lasting difference? Absolutely. For me, it's the establishment of a national independent commission, uh, as suggested by the Children's Commissioner, Judge Andrew Beecroft, to uh, look at and address uh, abuse, maltreatment and neglect of children in sport. So children, um, this is, if we look at gymnastics, for example, uh, this report found that 88% of gymnastics participants are aged under 12. And 78% of gymnastics participants are girls. So we're talking about young girls here who are being 
put through this. Um, and one of the things as well, when I spoke to David Hellman, who's one of the reviewers uh, of this review, uh, said the other day that the vast majority of New Zealanders who participate and engage with sport are actually aged under 18. And yet the way that sport is set up, it's set up by adults, kind of for adults, with policies that are angled towards adults, and there's no agency or voice for children to speak up. And that's one of the things that has also been identified by these former gymnasts like Georgia. Uh, you know, there's actually no children's voices in these uh, in this report. And so it's about agency and ensuring that they feel safe and welcome in sport. So that would be the recommendation that I would like to see pushed through. Well, I've always known it's a young person's sport, but mm. 88%, 12 and under. Felicity, that age group, the main priority's got to be fun, right? Well, I think the numbers are around 36,000 participants. And I think in 2019, only 4,000 of those people were actually competitive gymnasts. Mm. So the focus really does need to be on fun for the people who aren't in it to try and win a medal. <laughs> And, you know, we shouldn't actually take away that competitiveness because it's fun to win. And and we also attach our national identity to winning in New Zealand, right, when it comes to sport. But when we're talking about children under the age of 12, the fact that, you know, within this uh, uh, investigation that I did, you know, that we're finding athletes at age 9 or 10 have been asked to give up other sports to focus on this sport who are training 25 plus hours a week at 9. I mean, come on. That's that can't be healthy. That's not balanced lifestyles. And then what we're seeing is because they attach their entire identity to gymnastics from such a young age, when they finally retire at something like 15 and they have to retire after a severe injury, they actually have nothing to move on to or, or attach themselves to. And, and that's also shown in how the uh, retired gymnasts are, are dealing with ongoing effects of eating disorders and body image and depression. And, and we're talking about gymnasts not only in their teens and 20s, but in their 30s, 40s, 50s. We're going back 40 years here. Do you think some of these coaches are feeding some of these younger athletes um, an unrealistic goal? Like, if you do this and this, this, you'll stand on the podium one day. I mean, because... Bugger all people actually do right, end yeah. up winning a medal, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, if we look about, if we look at it in a wider context of the numbers of New Zealanders who are going to go on to be an All Black or be a gold medalist, it's a very, very minute. It's got to be less than one percent, right? Um, and you know. We should be encouraging excellence in sport, but one of the things out of this review found that there is this unattainable uh, push for perfection, and that's not healthy. Um, if it's balance is so important, and the thing is, though, if we want to win gold medals, then the welfare of those athletes needs to come first. So, if you look after the athlete, if they're good, if they're happy, if they're doing well, then the results are actually going to come. So it needs to change focus, and we need to focus on the athlete first. Felicity, there are always a small number of athletes in any sport that are just freakishly good at it, and they emerge pretty early on, and they're identified, and they themselves uh, love the sport, they're instinctively competitive, and they want to win. How hard is it to kind of put restraints around that competitive instinct? Is there such a thing as balance when you do have someone that talented? I think that also comes down to the adult in the situation, Mm -hmm. doesn't it? When people know better, a child's always going to want to chase their dreams and sometimes they don't necessarily have the most realistic understanding of what they're capable of or what their body's capable of. And sometimes if a coach latches onto this kid that they think is going to be the next great thing, they also want to push them. 
but they've got to be probably again that's that adult in the situation the more mature person and sometimes dial it back to something that's appropriate or is going to be able to be maintained over a long period of time so this person doesn't just burn out as a 10 year old because they were pushed so hard yeah, burnout is a huge issue uh, within youth sport. And really interesting as well, because we're talking a little bit here about early specialisation. You know, there's this whole mentality that we've got to get them young and they're going to be only be successful if they start really, really young. But in actual fact, I think I was reading something recently around Sport New Zealand, high performance Sport New Zealand, that the vast majority of our Olympians actually started specialising in their sports at about 15 not nine, not 12, but 15. Uh, and, and this is something that we need to talk about within gymnastics as well. And it's, it's uh, we also, there's a lack of understanding around particularly the female body and what happens to it during puberty because there is this idea in gymnastics that you've got to be young, slight, prepubescent to be successful, but that is not true. Uh, we are seeing athletes, particularly gymnasts, doing really well. I mean, look at Simone Biles. I mean, she's in her in her twenties and is doing so well. Um, so I think we need to understand that a bit more, and um, that's also driven by the fact that sport was traditionally set up by men for men's bodies and interests, uh, and women's experiences and voices have often been sidelined. And so, you know, and same with their bodies. So now's the time to really think about how we can optimize uh, things like hormones and and puberty, and and ensure that we get the best of it out of our people, our athletes, but in a really healthy and positive way. Felicity, do you think the review is a warning for other New Zealand sports organisations? Will they be paying attention? I think because of what has come out, it's a lot of abuse, which we've had other high-performance sports come under scrutiny, and that's generally around elite teams like cycling or the football ferns. But this is involving, again, it's involving children. It's involving young people coming up through a sport. It's involving people who maybe aren't, again, at that very, very top level. It's systematic through gymnastics. So I think because of the breadth and depth of what has come out, other sports probably do need to take a little bit of notice and pay maybe more attention to what is happening, say, in their clubs or, say, in some of those other lower-level areas as well, not just necessarily what their elite athletes are facing. So we have seen a lot of reviews over the past three or four years in a variety of sports. Mm. Are athletes getting to the point now where they're just not going to put up with it? Yeah, I think that's, you know, people have started to listen, which is great. And a lot of these reviews have actually been driven by women speaking up. And one of the things, again, with the traditional structure of sport, the sport was set up for men. But we've got to remember that women aren't little men. We're different. Uh, and so that's something that we need to look at as well. I, th- I think this uh, this review, gymnastics review in particular, is kind of a, a bit of a warning and a red flag to other sports. And, and they should be paying attention to this. And Raylene Castle has said this as well. Um, but other sports need to step back. They need to look at this, figure out what's going on in their organisations as well, um, also, you know, one of the biggest problems here is the fact that a lot of our NSOs are really underfunded. They're not, uh, they don't have a lot of money and they're, and they're kind of reliant on their uh, participants to fund the sport. So now's actually a really great time for cross-collaboration between sports to work on some of these recommendations that have come out of the review. And hopefully we can strengthen sport as a whole because of it.
And a lot of the sport funding model is based around a sport's capacity to produce medals. Is that part of the problem? Yes and no. Okay, so uh, when it comes to gymnastics, they've only got one carded high-performance athlete. Um, So uh, while uh, Gymnastics New Zealand does receive some form of funding from Sport New Zealand for their community, you know, um, engagement programs, um, let's, if you uh, unpack the high-performance stuff just for one minute. So we've also seen uh, abuse and allegations of abuse and the likes of canoe racing last year which was also uncovered by stuff Um, and you know the thing is though their funding is attached to medals Right. And unfortunately, High Performance Sport New Zealand and Canoe Racing New Zealand knew that there were issues and yet they still received lots of funding. And, and that's slightly concerning. And there is research to suggest, there's research out of um, the University of Otago, and we're also seeing similar stuff out of uh, Canada, to show that there is an intrinsic link between high-performance sport funding and the welfare of athletes. So if we go back to that whole notion of let's look after the athlete, if the athlete is good, then the results will come. Because in actual fact, in sport, results pretty much only make up one the 1%. It's about everything else. It's about the people. And if the people aren't good, the results aren't going to be good. Super Rugby Aotearoa kicks off at the end of the month and it's going to look different again with experimental laws being introduced. Goal line dropouts and captives referrals will be used for the first time when pre-season matches begin this weekend. The innovations which have World Rugby Executive Committee approval have been introduced after extensive feedback and collaboration with players, coaches and referees and follow the successful introduction of Golden Point and Red Card replacement laws in 2020. Rugby reporter Joe Porter is with me. Joe, are these rule changes simply tinkering, a bit of a waste of time, or will they make a difference? I guess we'll find out soon enough. The plan, obviously, New Zealand rugby's and world rugby's ultimately, is to speed up the game, try and take out some of the uh, the parts of the game that, that people are getting frustrated with, scrums being one of them. You could sort of see this as a clandestine way, the goal line dropout in particular of getting rid of five-metre scrums. Reset scrums have been a problem in games, and, and Super Rugby and Test Rugby for a long time now. Time-consuming, scrum goes down, has to reset again, it goes down again, it has to reset. Whose whose fault is it? Penalties seem to be a bit of a lottery. So it's one way of getting rid of more, getting rid of scrums, having fewer scrums in a match, which is good. You would think that that would speed up the game. Um, so I quite like the goal line dropout. It's very much copying rugby league, but it has been successful over there. Uh, you know, you think about a team that if, you, if an attacking team would kick the ball in goal in rugby at the moment. And the defensive team would have dive on it. It's a 22 dropout. You know, the team ambles back to 22. The other team takes time to reset. It sort of slows everything down and takes all the, the edge off that attack. Whereas now, being a goal line dropout, instead of a 22, if they do ground that ball defensively, they might just get up and bang it as quick as they can to kind of catch the attacking team off guard. So it may well speed up the game, and that's the aim there. The captain's referral... Uh, yeah, how, how will that mm, work? It's a, it's a weird one, this one. This is... I mean, it has worked... At, somewhat successfully in, in other sports like cricket for example you have you know your referrals and, and test cricket so is DRS. it just one they just one, get one opportunity one a game and uh it's only uh, it can only be referred to an opposite sort of you can challenge an opposition's try uh and 
the lead up to the 75th minute of the game at any point. So if you think the opposition have perhaps knocked it on three phases before they scored the try, you can say, excuse me, ref, I think there's been a mistake, and you go back and have a look at it. Uh, but then from the 75th minute onwards, you've got one chance to dispute or challenge a referee's call. So it might be a penalty or a knock-on or something like that. If you think the ref's got it wrong at that crucial period of the match, you can challenge it. And so then effectively the third umpire up in the stadium yeah. will look at the replay yeah. and make a call. And we have seen in other sports, even in that situation, yeah. they can get it wrong. Yeah, and it opens, you know, there it opens questions up about perhaps manipula- manipulation from coaches. You know, how long... Because uh, you know, what happens, right, say a team scores in the 80th minute, the last minute of play, and um, there's been 15 phases or 30 or 40 phases going back over five minutes. It's been non-stop play until that drive is scored, which does happen in the end of rugby games from time to time. They go back and forth, no stoppages and play for five-odd minutes. Now, at the moment, if they someone scores a try, the referee can only go back X amount of phases. I believe it's two or three to see if there was a mistake in the lead-up to that, an infringement by the attacking team or a mistake. If there was, okay, try disallowed. However, if the captain challenges this call for now, and they can go back as far as they want in that passage of play until the last stoppage. So it could go being back five minutes. So you could have coaches scouring five minutes of play to quickly have a look and get a message out onto the field. No, there was a slight knock-on back ten minutes ago. So the video editor will have to be very quick. Quick, though, because you've got work. ten seconds. You've got ten seconds to challenge the ref's call. That's it. So that's how they're trying to mitigate that issue right. of having a coach and team scouring over footage to to find an, an issue or a mistake somewhere and challenge a referee's call, you've got 10 right. seconds to challenge. So you, I guess, have seen a knock-on that the ref has missed, it was blatant, or a forward pass that everyone seems to have missed, and you say, hang on, no way, that was a forward pass, please go and have a look. The referee in many instances will go, look, I caught it, mate, we're going to the TMO anyway, so just hold off, don't challenge, don't waste it, we're going to go have a look regardless. Right. But if they just call a try, yep, that's that, and all of a sudden the crowd's looking everywhere, players are looking around on the field going, that was a forward pass, they can challenge it. Okay, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And Australian Super Rugby, they're introducing new rules to their competition as well this year. 30-second restarts and uh, Golden Point try. Weird one, that one. How? Explain that one. How does that work? <sighs> yes. if, if you can. Okay, so Golden, essentially, if the team's a level one points drawn at the end of a full time, they go to an extra time Golden Point period. But instead of being Golden Point where... You know, anyone to score the first point wins, or whoever you know finishes on top at the end of that thing, uh, end of the extra period of time wins. They have golden tries, so you've got to actually score a try. So if you were to, for example, kick a drop goal or get a penalty and kick it over, you and no one was to score any tries in that extra period, you, the game would be declared a draw anyway, even though you'd win on the scoreboard. So you have to actually win by scoring a try, which is quite odd, I thought. I mean, I, I'm happy for it to be, if you score a try, that's it. The game's over then and there. Finished golden try, great. But surely, if throughout the passage of that 10 minutes you kick a goal somewhere along the line, from, you should win. But nope, not the case. So, yeah, you've got to go for the try. What impact well, could it have on future trans-Tasman clashes if players are operating under different mm. rules, different competitions? Yeah, well, that's right. We don't know if any of this stuff will make it to test rugby. So I guess it's the players have to adjust to the new rules and then not necessarily play with them at international at test level. They have to go back to the old rules. And then if they play this trans-Tasman mooted competition, which may or may not happen depending on what's going on with COVID, uh, they might have to adjust to some new rules simply for that one competition, like a 50-22 that the Australians have, where if you kick the ball from within your own half and it goes out in the opposition's 22, you get the ball back. Uh, a lot of teams have been scoring tries from that particular rule innovation in Australia, so if all of a sudden the New Zealand teams had to adjust to playing with that, it could be quite interesting.
It's game set and match for ASP Tennis Classic Tournament Director Carl Budge. After nine years in the role, Budge, having boosted the tournament's international profile, attendance and revenue, is moving on. He's attracted some of the biggest names in the sport to the tournament, including Serena and Venus Williams, Juan Martin Del Potro and Naomi Osaka. He told Cheap Points Lisa Owen why the time is right to leave. The first rule, really, of event management is um, send people away wanting more and rather than feeling like they've had enough. That's something I guess I wanted to do from a personal career perspective as well. Uh, I wanted to, to leave while um, people, uh, had, I guess, had enough of me. How much did COVID play in this decision? COVID you know, certainly played a role in terms of having so much time at home with my family. Uh, normally I'm 100 days a year out of New Zealand, so not doing that and realising the joys of having so much family time certainly played a role, but really off the back of 2020 yeah we had such an amazing tournament that it was always going to be pretty hard to eclipse and so um for me i felt like i had achieved what i wanted to achieve here and i wanted to um hit away on on a high and explore new challenges are you heading away on a high i imagine not being able or having to cancel the tournament must have been a huge disappointment do you feel that you got enough support trying to get it over the line um, look, there's always things we could have done differently, and I think the process could be different. But at the end of the day, I don't think the outcome would have been any different. You only have to look at how hard it's been for the players over in Melbourne to understand the challenges we would have had. And as a small regional sports organisation, we simply just don't have the financial security you know, to have gone through that level of risk, been able to move up and down levels at any point, etc. So we, it really was the only option for us. And while you know, there was a sense of sadness, um, this last period has proven... Yeah, that it was the right decision for us to make. In saying that then, how confident are you that the ASB Classic will go ahead next year? There's no reason why it can't. We've been here for 60 years. You know, there's no reason why we won't be here for another 60. We've won the awards we've won because the players like what we do. We've got incredible commercial support uh, in terms of our sponsors in New Zealand. You know, we know the fans. You know, we, we had over 100,000 people come through the gates last year. We know people enjoy getting out and be part of this event. So there's absolutely no reason why... We can't return. But uh, realistically, Carl, won't it be facing the same challenges that you have just outlined? Because we've been told mass vaccination will take a year. It's not going to start until midway through this year. Expect travel restrictions into next year. Doesn't the tournament, in essence, face exactly the same challenges which prevented it going ahead this time? Uncertainty. Yeah, I don't think there's a sports organisation or event or, or otherwise on the planet that can play it more than the six, eight weeks out at the moment, such as the, the vulnerability and, and the environment we're in due to COVID. If COVID plays its part, there's no reason why we can't come back. If COVID disrupts us for another year, yeah, we'll just be switching that planning to 2023. You know, and whenever COVID doesn't enable us to have some degree of normality again, I'm sure the Aspect Classic will come back in its full glory. A lot of the success of this tournament is to do with you. You've brought in the big names, right? So... Can someone else pull those names after you're gone? Yeah, look, I faced a lot of the same questions when, when I arrived. You know, Richard had been here for 23 years when I took over. People were saying, oh, the tournament's not going to be the same uh, without Richard here. And hopefully we've been able to come in and, and put our unique spin on it. And, and someone else will come and do the same. They'll come in and take it in a new direction and you know, eclipse what we've been able to do.
That brings us to the end of Extra Time. My thanks to Felicity Reid, Zoe George and Joe Porter. Extra Time is available every Friday from about 4pm. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, iHeartRadio and of course at rnz.co.nz. Give us a rating if you would. That helps a whole lot and means other listeners can find us more easily. I'm Bridget Tunnicliffe. Haere da. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.